0: Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral by Gil Bailey, narrated by Gil Bailey, and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, part two. The refusal to reciprocate violence for violence is the key to denying violence its legitimizing rationale. By scandalizing the victim and or those potential witnesses to the victim's innocence, the scandalon effaces the distinction between the victim and the persecutor. And with that distinction eliminated, the sanctioning of the persecutorial event has little to stand in its way that the propaganda apparatus at the disposal of the powerful cannot dispense with. The wonderful passage in the letter to the Ephesians Which says, it is not against flesh and blood that we must struggle, but against the powers and principalities that dwell in the darkness of this world. This world being the cultural gestalt. We are not struggling against flesh and blood. So taking up violence against flesh and blood will not do a thing to the powers and principalities. If those who recognize the victimary nature of the powers that be retaliate with violence, they start the whole cycle all over again. From the larger perspective, one could say that the provocation to violent rebellion is the sacrificial system's final move, one parallel to the occasional phenomenon in nature of a creature who gives his life in the procreative act, as Claggett did. To die at the hands of the rebel, is the sacrificial cult's last-ditch ploy for remaining in force, as the smile on the dead claggard's face in the film version of Billy Budd hints. So it's possible to be immune enough to the sacrificial mystification to repudiate its reasoning and yet still be susceptible enough to its logic to perpetuate it in retaliation against its official sponsors. Now, thanks largely to the gospel influence, those who reconstitute the sacrificial cult so to speak in sheep's clothing by taking up arms against it will use the word martyr to refer to the victim whose death they are attempting to avenge but technically the word does not fit i say technically that from a christian point of view technically the word means a witness and more particularly the witness to some truth beyond the realm of winners and losers Technically, the word is improperly used by those, uh, about those whose deaths have given rise to historical reactions, which, which are merely the same song, second verse of the sacrificial cult. So to go back to Jesus for a minute, what I'm about to do is by no means an attempt to limit anything in the record of Jesus, but it, uh, just to give us something to reflect on. When Jesus prepares his friends for his approaching death, he does two things that are relevant to the present discussion. First thing is that he encourages them not to accept the official version of what happened. Remember the official version we got of the killing of Billy Budd that appeared in this publication called News from the Mediterranean? Jesus prepares his, in case there is any chance of that, prepares his friends for that. He says in the Gospel of John, it is to fulfill the word that is written in their law, quote, they hated me without a cause. And then he prepares them or encourages them not to be scandalized or to scandalize as a result of this death. He says to them, if you want to remember me, do this. Have a meal. Tremendous temptation is to do what Josiah did. Is to go to the sacrificial altar that you have just recognized as a sacrificial altar and to slaughter the priests of that cult on that altar. It's a tremendous compulsion. And that compulsion is part of the powers and principality. It's what Josiah did. In the Last Supper, Jesus, in a sense, goes to that altar and breaks bread there and says, do this, and substitutes a sacramental for a sacrificial strategy for dealing with life. In doing that, Jesus turns the altar into a table. In a recent lecture, Sebastian Moore makes the following comment. The prodigious labor of love that is Calvary and Easter dethrones the God we put over us to avoid the mystery and reveals God as the mystery into whose life we are drawn as into a dance. This horizontalizing of our relationship with God makes sacramental our horizontal dimension. Sebastian Moore. It is not enough to condemn sacrifice something must be done to prevent the crisis that demands sacrifice from reaching climax. So the church is in the business of dispensing sacrament. By sacrament, I mean anything that makes Christ present or does Christ's work. But in times of crisis, when the sacrificial cult is itself most scandalous, when it can channel almost any standard challenge to itself toward new sacrificial ends, the church does the one thing that the sacrificial cult cannot channel and neither can it long survive. It witnesses to what has taken place. The one thing that the cult cannot tolerate is witnesses. They must be eliminated. They must be eliminated either by becoming sacrificial victims themselves or by being seduced into the logic of the sacrificial operation. Either one will do. Well, it's except for a little passage here from Yeats. It's time to get to the, the women of Canterbury. I want to set the tone, though, by reading something from William Butler Yeats in his wonderful poem entitled Meditations in Time of Civil War because the atmosphere in Canterbury is an atmosphere of civil war. There's strife, that kind of strife in the atmosphere that the women are reacting to. So here's what Yeats says. I climb to the tower top and lean upon broken stone. A mist that is like blown snow is sweeping over all. Vengeance upon the murderers, the cry goes up, Vengeance for Jacques Molay. In cloud-pale rags, or in lace, The rage-driven, rage-tormented, and rage-hungry troop, Trooper-belaboring trooper, Biting at arm and at face, Plunges towards nothing arms and fingers spreading wide for the embrace of nothing. And I, my wits astray, because of all that senseless tumult, all but cried for vengeance on the murderers of Jacques Molay. In case we think it isn't contagious. Mm-hmm. The ladies closed their musing eyes, No prophecies remembered out of Babylonian almanacs have closed the lady's eye. Their minds are but a pool where even longing drowns under its own excess. Nor self-delighting reverie, nor hate of what's to come, nor pity for what's gone, nothing but grip of claw, and the eye's complacency the innumerable clanging wings that have put out the moon. i read that particularly because of the contagion of the moment, the electricity of the moment. But more specifically because it requires that the ladies close their musing eyes. And the grip of claw requires the eye's complacency. And the women of Canterbury are overcoming that complacency as are all Christians as we sit here today. Gravitating, as Philip Larkin said, toward this ground. Gravitating toward the cathedral with tremendous ambivalence. So here's the chorus. Here let us stand close by the cathedral. Here let us wait. Are we drawn by danger? Is it the knowledge of safety that draws our feet toward the cathedral? What danger can be for us, the poor, the poor women of Canterbury? What tribulation with which we are not already familiar? There is no danger for us, and there is no safety in the cathedral. Some presage of an act which our eyes are compelled to witness, has forced our feet towards the cathedral. We are forced to bear witness. Now, if you are investigating the role of the church in the modern world, that is a very profound line. We are forced to bear witness. No longer participants, no longer spectators, but witnesses. And none of that would be possible if the old cult was still in force. Somehow it has been broken. The Dionysian cycle is no longer sustaining. It has become barren. And so the chorus goes on, Since golden October declined into somber November, and the apples were gathered and stored, and the land became brown sharp points of death in a waste of water and mud. The new year waits, breathes, waits, whispers in darkness, while the laborer kicks off a muddy boot and stretches his hand to the fire. This is just life going on, and the laborer who is all of us, who is the beneficiary of the existing system without knowing it. He do, he's not there to witness. He's, he's still contained in it. And so it's still providing services for him. So when he comes home, he kicks off his muddy boots and stretches his hand toward the fire. Perfectly natural. Seems nothing wrong with that. But what Elliot is now going to do is an absolutely masterful thing. He is going to slowly call our attention to what that fire is. The laborer kicks off his muddy boot and stretches his hand to the fire. Why not? Of course, it's natural. The new year waits. Destiny waits for the coming. Who has stretched out his hand to the fire and remembered the saints at All Hallow? Remembered the martyrs and saints who wait? Somehow this fire has to do with the saints and martyr. And who shall stretch out his hand to the fire and deny his master? Who shall be warm by the fire and deny his master? So there is a transition here between the fire as the perfectly natural thing to do when the laborer comes home who's completely contained in the cultural myth and the fire slowly being exposed for what it is, which is the locale of the denial of Peter. Peter stands and warms himself by the fire and denies his master. This fire, I would suggest to you, is the sacrificial fire and it is history's hearthplace, and the labourer who comes off and comes home and kicks off his boots and stretches out his hand is wonderfully innocent of the source of all of those benefits, but the women of Canterbury are not, and they've begun to recognize that fire which is the hearthplace of history as the place where we. Deny, as Peter did, the master. Seven years in the summer is over. Seven years since the archbishop left us. He who was always kind to his people. Seven, you know, is the archetypal number. And seven years in the summer is over. The easy time is over. I think what's... Eliot is doing here is he is talking about human history. The first and second coming of Christ is the paradigm. What happens in between the first and second coming of Christ is history. History is over as soon as Christ comes again. It happens in between the first and second coming of Christ. History. And it's been seven years, that's the period, the archetypal period. But it would not be well if he should return. See, that's the Grand Inquisitor. We're making do. We don't want to be interrupted. I mean, we've finally begun. We're getting high by getting by. I mean, we don't need something breaking into this. We're just kind of getting the hang of it. King rules or barons rule. We have suffered various oppression. So there's chaos in the historical realm as well. But mostly we are left to our own devices, and we are content if we are left alone. We try to keep our households in order. There's a little reference, I think, back to the wasteland where it ends with Eliot not being able to make the the leap of faith. And so he says, well, I will be satisfied with setting my own house in order. So they're saying, well, we've just tried to get by, set our house in order. The merchant, shy and cautious, tries to compile a little fortune. This is what happens in history. And the laborer bends to his piece of earth, earth color his own color, preferring to pass unobserved. Now I fear disturbance of the quiet season. Something's going to break into our to our to our accommodation. Our accommodation to it is about to be interrupted. Winter shall come bringing death from the sea. Ruinous spring shall beat at our door. There's another version of April is the Cruelest Month. Root and shoot shall eat our eyes and our ears. Disastrous summer burn up the beds of our streams. And the poor shall wait for another decaying October. So history is, the cycles are being emptied of their meaning. Why should the summer bring consolation for autumn fires and winter fogs? What shall we do in the heat of summer but wait in barren orchards for another October? Some malady is coming upon us. We wait, we wait, and the saints and martyrs wait for those who shall be martyrs and saints. Destiny waits in the hand of God, shaping the still unshapen. I have seen these things in a shaft of sunlight. Destiny waits in the hand of God, not in the hands of statesmen who do some well, some ill, planning and guessing, having their aims which turn in their hands in the pattern of time. Come, happy December. Who shall observe you? Who shall preserve you? Shall the Son of Man be born again in the litter of scorn? Now there's the condition for the entry of the Christian revelation into history. And before we just end on those last two lines, I'll go to the last part of Gates' second coming. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming... Hardly are those words out, when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow side, while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle, and what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born? And Oppenheimer says, I have become death, and Einstein says, all men have become brother. All of that is coming. And the women of Canterbury say, for us, the poor, there is no action but only to wait and to witness. Let's not forget the fact that the word witness means martyr. So the role of the Christian, Christianity is the training ground for martyrdom. The great Christian prayer is, uh, lead us not into temptation. And once we understand that Christianity is the training of martyrs, we we pray that with a great deal of fervor. Uh, But martyr means witness, and uh, that's what it requires. In In the face of the ongoing disaster of the sacrificial cult, the historical role is to witness. Here's what Eugene Peterson says about witness. He says, when we witness, we do not recruit or propagandize we clear the ground where decisions are made, trying to throw some little light on the intersection between time and eternity, and invite entrance into that clarity where the narrow way begin. Now, I'd like to just spend a few minutes talking about that sentence. When we witness, we clear the ground where decisions are made. The word decisions comes from the Latin de sedere, which means to sever or to cut, Girard has argued that etymologically that word is a vestige of a sacrificial vocabulary indicating that when major decisions have to be made, when the line has to be drawn, it is made with a sharp blade or drawn in blood. When Eugene Peterson unconcerned with these kind of issues, I'm sure, says in his remarkable observation that to witness is to clear the ground where decisions are made. He says something that relates to the kind of investigation we've been pursuing. And then when he says to throw light on the intersection between time and eternity, he speaks like Eliot speaks. Those of you familiar with Eliot's poetry know how often Eliot returns to that issue, the intersection between time and eternity that is what preoccupies T.S. Eliot particularly in his later poetry and play i'm using here as you know rené girard's interpretive tool and we're looking at t.s. eliot's play i don't want to be i don't want to subordinate eliot's play to to girard but what i'd like to do is to bring uh, girard and eliot into a dialogue in our presence using the poetry of eliot and the interpretive insights of of Girard and see what, together, they can tell us about the situation in which we live. Standard decisions have to do with keeping separate two things, the in-group from the out-group, the sacred from the profane, the heroes from the hooligans. It keeps separate. And it is the pharisaical mind, using New Testament terminology, the pharisaical mind that jealously guards that line. And if it has to, engages in a sacrificial act to redraw it in blood. But Peterson then says the witness tries to clear that ground and then throw light on the intersection between time and eternity. So we have in the word intersection something that feels almost the opposite of the word decision. It says something about things coming together that we had thought were completely separate, things like time and eternity, so that the witness begins to see that line is not final, is not worthy of us, and is certainly not something that justifies sacrificial acts. So, you see, that's why the whole New Testament thing about forgiveness, reconciliation, we don't have to draw that line. If we have to draw it in blood, we must not draw it. Let's find some way to Attend to the intersection. You see, not the center, the righteous and the sinners, the out, in group and out group, and sacred and profane, but the coming together of time and eternity. Right after the chorus, we get the three priests, and the three priests are, are really three parts of one uh, representative of the of the church entangled in in uh, worldly affairs. Uh, but in various degrees of that entanglement. So really, they 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 almost have separate personalities, priest one, two, and three. The first priest quotes two lines out of the chorus's uh, earlier lament, seven years in the summer is over, seven years since the archbishop left us. And the second priest is really attending to the historical dynamic. The second priest is the one who reads the morning paper to find out what's happening. And so he says, what does the archbishop do and our sovereign Lord, the pope, with the stubborn king and the French king in ceaseless intrigue, combinations, in conference, meetings accepted, meetings refused, meetings unended or endless in one place or another in France? So he's looking at the surface of this confusion that's going on, and he's trying to sort it out and find out what's really going on the way we would try to find out what's really going on by reading the paper. The third priest understands things at a much deeper level. He says, I see nothing conclusive in the art of temporal government, but violence, duplicity, and frequent malversation. King rules or barons rule, the strong man strongly, and the weak man by caprice. They have but one law, to seize the power and keep it. And the steadfast can manipulate the greed and lust of others. The feeble is devoured by his own. So the law of history is the law of power, and the object is to get it and keep it, and all of that is driven by mimetic desire, to use the Girardian term for Eliot's phrase greed and lust. Some can manipulate the greed and lust of others, and those who cannot do that uh, suffocate in their own. But all of this is driven by what Girard calls mimetic desire. And it finally gives rise to a crass struggle for seizing and keeping power. And the first priest then says, Shall these things not end until the poor at the gate have forgotten their friend, their father and God have forgotten that they had a friend? In other words, participation in this historical dialectic is so intensely fascinating and compelling and enthralling that it drowns out the still small voice. And pretty soon we think this is really what is happening. Nothing else is happening. Parker Palmer says the, defines functional atheism as behaving as though nothing will happen unless we make it happen. And so this first priest says this historical... Confusion is so fascinating and compelling and enthralling that when we get caught up in it, we lose any sense that there might be a, some other ingredient in this, that God may have a hand in what's going on. So they're trying to sort out the the general environment which the women of Canterbury are feeling uh, in their viscera as a as a haunting one. The messenger comes in and announces that the archbishop has returned to England on very short notice. And then the three priests wonder aloud in quick succession, does this mean that there's been a reconciliation or not? The first priest, what reconciliation of two proud men? And the third priest, what peace can be found to grow between the hammer and the anvil? Our old disputes at an end? Is the wall of pride cast down? Is it peace or war? Now, what's alluded to here already is that Thomas is a proud man and Henry is a proud man. Uh, but we're going to have to learn more about Thomas's pride as things go on. But... What is coming of this? Does this return to England mean that things are being resolved or reconciled, or does it mean that the war is going to break open? And the messenger says, you are right to express a certain incredulity. And what I want to do in a few minutes is to take that the messenger's insight there and elaborate on it. In fact, they are right to express a certain incredulity. But then he goes on, the messenger goes on to say, He comes in pride and sorrow, affirming all his claims assured beyond doubt of the devotion of the people who receive him with scenes of frenzied enthusiasm, lining the road and throwing down their capes, strewing the the way with leaves and late flowers of the season. It's Jesus entering Jerusalem. That's the parallel for what's happening. And we know something about the follow-on to that event. Uh, the crowd is greeting Thomas's return with glee, quite the contrary to the chorus of the women of Canterbury, who understand viscerally the implication of the situation and of Thomas's return. And the messenger says he is at one with the Pope and the King of France. That is to say, he's, he has his, the right ally. But as for our King, that is another matter. And the first priest says, is it war or peace? the messenger says, peace, but not the kiss of peace, a patched-up affair, if you ask my opinion. I think that this peace is nothing like an end or like a beginning. A patched-up affair. Because we tend to live in a life-or-death universe, we fear endings. And if it comes to a very bad situation we would rather patch it up than to have a beginning that requires an end. This is also something that preoccupied Eliot in his later poetry. In Little Gidding*, he says, what we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. But this is a patched-up affair. It's neither an end nor a beginning, says the, says the messenger. In a dying and rising universe, one would understand more quickly that an end has to precede the beginning. We are tricked into inhabiting a life-or-death universe in which we cling to something that is dying uh, and try to patch it up. Then the first priest says, I fear for the archbishop, I fear for the church. I know that the pride bred of sudden prosperity was but confirmed by bitter adversity. I saw him as chancellor, flattered by the king, always isolated, never one among them, always insecure, his pride always feeding upon his own virtues, pride drawing sustenance from impartiality, pride drawing sustenance from generosity. So he's a proud man, this Thomas, and his pride seems to feed on all of his virtue. His chief sin seems to grow as a result of his chief virtue. Had the king been greater or had he been weaker, things had perhaps been different for Tom. Now I'd like to bring Gerard and Eliot into dialogue here in this passage. Pride bred of sudden prosperity was but confirmed by bitter adversity. The sin of pride is the sin of condescension. It's the sin really against community, the cutting of oneself off from the community. This came about because of... Sudden prosperity and, and bitter adversity. Now, the prosperity was that Thomas's stock rose very quickly from chancellor to archbishop, from lower positions to chancellor to archbishop. Later on, Thomas says, I was the king. His arm, his better reason. And then the bitter ad- adversity was the rivalry, which we might understand as inevitable rivalry, between the now almost coequal Thomas and Henry, his king, as Girard speaks of this process as the process of moving from mimetic desire, where one has a where the model uh, encourages one to strive for what the model wants or has, in this case, preeminence, prestige, power, and then when one approaches the acquisition of that goal, one finds that the model is now the rival. And the whole thing changes from mimetic desire to mimetic rivalry. Pride bred of sudden prosperity was but confirmed by bitter adversity. It's an allusion, I think, to the fateful point, which we've spoken of before here, almost the point of no return, at which prime attention shifts from the goals of one's striving to an absorption of interest in one's opponent. Slowly, the rhetoric of the conflict grows more abstract and more preoccupied with the now obsessional obstacle to the now almost irrelevant goal of desire. Ahab in Melville's Moby Dick is a classic example of that. To try to flesh this out a little bit, I, I want to quote to you a passage from Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. In that play, there is a Roman triumvirate, Caesar, Pompey, and Lepidus. And then lolling around in, in Egypt is Anthony, the other great one. And Enobarbus, Anthony's lieutenant, and Eros, Anthony's uh, valet, are having a conversation about recent events in Rome. And Eros says, Caesar and Lepidus have made wars upon Pompey. And Enobarbus says, this is old, what is the success? In other words, this is the old news, what's the, what's the latest? And Eros says, Caesar, having made use of him in wars against Pompey, presently denied him rivality, meaning uh, equality, would not let him partake in the glory of the action, and not resting here accuses him of letters he had formerly wrote to Pompey." Upon his own appeal seizes him, so the poor third is up till death enlarge his confine. And Enobarbus says, "Then world, thou hast a pair of chaps, no more, and throw between them all the food thou hast, they'll grind the one the other. In other words, now that Caesar has consumed the other two triumf- uh, the other two uh triumphers. There's only Caesar and Anthony. And Enobarbus knows enough about history to know, okay, put your seatbelts on, because this is the main match. It narrows itself down to the what Gerard calls the Warring Brothers. And then all that they might be warring for begins to fade, and each becomes preoccupied with eliminating the, the other at any cost. It becomes an irrational conflict. The ultimate expression of this, by the way, is in Dante's The Bottom of Hell when Count Ugolino is eating the back brain of the Archbishop Ruggieri for all eternity, so profoundly preoccupied with his hated opponent. We have to see the context of this rivalry in order to appreciate Thomas's spiritual, the spiritual journey he has to make. It's extremely difficult to extricate oneself from this stage of the mimetic complex. And yet, if no extrication occurs, the situation begins to drift toward what Hitler called the final solution, toward the sacrificial event. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, as a matter of fact, Jesus says, if you are bringing your offering to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar. Go and be reconciled with your brother first and then come back and present your offering. You remember in the book of Leviticus, we, we talked about the story where the, the two sons of Aaron um, approach the altar at the, at the intense moment of the sacrificial act and suddenly are caught up in it and are sacrificed themselves, thrown into the sacrificial fire after which the scapegoat ritual is instituted in Israel to try to drain off some of that uh, guilt that requires a human sacrifice. But in any case, what Jesus is saying is, beware of what happened to the sons of Aaron. If you have a grudge against somebody, don't go near the sacrificial plate lest this thing become a sacrificial episode. Go and reconcile. And then you can go and participate liturgically in some uh, distant vestige of the sacrificial act, and f- for purposes of reinterpretation or whatever, you know. But don't, there's a, a very practical text, you know. Don't go near the sacrificial altar if you are still carrying this bitterness, because you will become a sacrificial priest ad hoc. Thomas Merton says, in one of his poems, Ten guns are out of Work Up anger hollow. Keep Cain out of that hollow. It's fairly clear how many of the other so-called deadly sins are related to the mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry syndrome. Envy, anger, lust, avarice, etc. What Eliot helps us see is how pride likewise incubates in the mimetic complex. He says, pride is bred of sudden prosperity and confirmed by bitter adversity. Bread in the sta- to use the Girardian terminology, bred in the stages of mimetic desire, and uh, further enhanced when that inevitably becomes mimetic rivalry. And almost to underscore that, this first priest concludes that little passage by saying. Had the king been greater or had he been weaker, things had perhaps been different for Tom. In other words, had, the, had their relative positions in the, in the overall cultural setting been less equal, this incredibly compelling warring brothers situation wouldn't have ripened as it had. But because they hold something like comparable positions of weight in their cultural environment, they are now warring brothers. The second priest, the politically-minded one, the one who who uh, begins his day with the reading the newspaper, says, let's not forget, our guy's coming home. Hey, our guy's coming home. We're the priest, we're the church, we're having this controversy with the state, the captain of our team is coming home. Let's cheer, See, let's rally. He says, the archbishop shall be at our head, dispelling dismay and doubt. He will... Tell us what we are to do, he will give us our orders, instruct us. We can lean on a rock, we can feel a firm foothold against the perpetual wash of tides of balance of forces of barons and landholders. The rock of God is beneath our feet. Our Lord, our Archbishop, return. There's a little echo here too of our Lord, our Archbishop, returned, because the paradigm here is the second coming. And this is the guy who's thinks the second coming will involve a ticker tape parade. Hey, hey, good for our team. Too bad for the other team. Second coming. Let's hear it. Our guy's returning. Now things are going to be fine. Our doubts are dispelled. I'm the archbishop's man, he said. Let us let us give the archbishop welcome. Let me read you something Gerard said. He says, historical Christianity covers the gospel text with a veil of sacrifice, the Christian text is able to found something that in in principle it ought never to have founded, a culture. Obviously, this culture is not quite like those that preceded it, but it is sufficiently similar to the others to perpetuate the great legal, mythical, and sacrificial principles at the basis of every culture. In modern time when people have talked about a Christian vision of history they have not really been talking about a radically Christian appropriation of history which could only be apocalyptic even if perhaps especially if a historian is a quote modern Christian he would be ashamed to take such old wives tales such idiotic old ramblings, seriously. What passes for a Christian vision nowadays in enlightened European circles is a notion of history that is both serious and optimistic, replete with social progress and goodwill to all mankind." End quote. That's the second priest. Hey, hey, he said. This is a good sign. Our guy's back. Progress is going to be made here after we eliminate some of the opponents. You see, that's the unsaid part. The third priest goes deeper. The third priest says, For good or ill, let the wheel turn. The wheel has been still these seven years, and no good. For ill or good, let the wheel turn. For who knows the end of good or evil? Until the grinders cease, and the doors shall be shut in the streets, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. Now we have to study this a little bit, I believe. We've just heard from Girard who said that a radical appropriation of history would have to be apocalyptic. The third priest says, we cannot know the end of good or evil until the grinders cease and the daughters of music shall be brought low. The organ grinders in the streets and the daughters of music brought low. In the Greek tradition, the mother of the muses is namosthenic. The muses are the sponsors of culture, what we usually think of as culture, the cultural artifacts, drama, poetry, music, history. So the Daughters of Demosthenes provide us with culture. And so do, at a more popular level, so to speak, the grinders in the street. It's a different version. It's not quite the Daughters of Music here, but it's a different version of the cultural ambience. But the reference here is to music as a metaphor for culture. seems to me what the priest is saying here is that we can't really estimate what this struggle between good and evil has come to as long as we have ringing in our ears the music from either the grinder or the daughters of music, namely the cultural mythologization that fills our consciousness while we try to witness something. When you go to a a movie, the soundtrack tells you what to feel in the same way that the chorus in this play tells you what to feel. When you go to a, a liturgy, the music tells you how to appreciate what's going on and i think the reference here in the third to in the third priest statement is to the culturally sponsored soundtrack that encourages us to experience it one way or another think of hitler and wagner think of the movie apocalypse now and all the guys sitting in the in the helicopter warships with earplugs playing rock music this little passage in eliot says we can't sort it out until the grinders cease and the daughters of music are brought low because we're being told what to experience by this in some in some visceral way it's part of the mystification process you understand i'm not launching a puritanical uh, drive to eliminate the because as i say in a in a liturgy we Think of the Good Friday liturgy. That's another version of the same thing. In a sense, we're brought to the same sacrificial act, but we're encouraged to attend to it in a wholly different way. I heard on the radio this morning, last night, uh, somebody, a Chinese general saying, there were no shots fired in Tiananmen Square. And I thought to myself, does he believe that or not? Has, in other words, even though he may have been standing right there, how powerful is the, the mystification thing? Does he really believe that? So the so the daughters of Nemosthenes provide us with culture. Let me just come back to uh the daughters of memory for a second. If memory is contained in the myth, it will remember the dismembering by veiling the culture-founding sacrifice in illusion. It's exactly what's happening in China right now. What really took place will have to be remembered by those not under the sway of the mystifications. Those who remember after the grinders cease and the daughters of music have been brought low, who have not been tuned in to that music. In other words, to see what's really going on, we have to wait till the daughters of music have been brought low.